again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And once again, welcome to the show. My name is Jeffrey Kwame. I'm your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. On behalf of the board of directors and staff at the CCB, I'd like to welcome you. This episode is Scope of Practice. Today, we get the opportunity to do one of my favorite things. We get to challenge the status quo. When asked about the best steps forward for substance use disorder treatment industry can take to improve itself, our guest today simply responded, what we simply need is a nice bulldozer so that we could level the entire industry and start from scratch. Another approach is that you could use dynamite. The statement did not come from an enemy of the SUG treatment system or someone with a particular ax to grind. Rather, it came from someone who knows the treatment system inside and out the former division director of treatment and recovery research at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in Metro DC, Dr. Mark Willenbrink. If you have listened to previous episodes of this podcast, you know of my concern with the issues of credibility that our industry faces, be it individuals adding their own substantiated conclusions to the research findings of the Cochrane study on the effectiveness in Alcohol Anonymous, which we did with PhD candidate Kapil Nayar, and our discussion of the fallacy of attribution and failure to effectively measure meaningful outcomes to guide treatment with Timothy Harrington and Dr. Bob Lynn. I am absolutely thrilled to be able to have this discussion today with Dr. Willenbring as it raises the stakes even more. Dr. Mark Willenbring is an internationally recognized addiction psychiatrist who has been pioneering new ways to treat alcohol and drug use disorders for over 30 years. Dr. Willenbring was featured in the HBO Addiction Special, has appeared on national broadcasts of most major television networks, has been quoted in several large city newspapers, including the New York Times. He was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Minnesota and was a leader in implementing research findings into clinical practice at the VA healthcare system. Dr. Willenbring then moved to the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, where he directed the division responsible for funding research research grants on alcohol treatment and recovery to universities across the United States. While there, he became aware that new knowledge and tools resulting from the NIH funding of alcohol and drug treatment were not being made available to the people who needed them, and that the current addiction treatment system is not built on science, but on an antiquated rehab model that has not changed much since 1955. When he left NIH to return to Minnesota, he was determined to stimulate transformative change in addiction treatment in America. He formed Altier in 2012 with that purpose, and the first Altier clinic was opened in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2013 to demonstrate an alternative. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Willenbrink to the podcast. Good to see you, sir. Nice to be here. Thank you. The statement quoted in the opening, it certainly gets people's attention. It got people's attention with its directness. And I've been chomping at the bit to discuss it with you. Um, The vivid symbolism of the bulldozer and dynamite aside, can you tell us some of the reasons to start from scratch and rebuild? Sure. You know, the, the current industry model was developed in the 1940s, and it has changed very little since then, since the first uh, treatment center opened in 48, 49. Uh, and the purpose of that treatment was initially thought to be to just provide an introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. So the, um, you know, it was a four week program. So the first week was attention to the body. So most of the people came in, they were all heavy, very, very heavy drinkers. And so you needed to you know, manage withdrawal and treat their liver disease and kind of get them into shape the first week. The second and third weeks were 
meant to be an introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. So you were, uh, uh, and then so people were taught the AA model of disease model, and then were, um, and some of the, and, and they all went out to various AA uh, groups. And the, um, and then the fourth week was discharge planning. Now, the fathers of this program um, never imagined that it would be thought that you should do your transform transformative treatment in rehab. And somehow over time, that became distorted. Uh, and so one of the things was, one of the reasons for that was that people would keep coming back to, to rehab. And so they do the same thing over again. And they still do that. Everybody still does that in rehab. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you it's your first or your 22nd time through rehab. It's the same thing. And, you know, so you, you wonder about that because, you know, it's like they say at AA, uh, why do you keep doing the same thing expecting a different result, right? Mm -hmm. So... And um, the, so that was the, the, the primary problem. The second thing is that a synanon was a group that treated drug abuse uh, and was for, founded by a sociopath, uh, actually a psychopath who was really uh, a, a bad man. <laughs> <laughs> and he eventually got into trouble. But the, um, they, they were kind of merged at some point when a drug and alcohol treatment were merged. And uh, so I think that's where some of this, uh, the transformation occurs during rehab business started. So all of that was fine for the time. So it was based primarily on the experience of people in AA and in Synanon. And, it, it, uh, and that was that. Now, as time has gone on, we've, we've built a big scientific literature. Uh, that gives us a lot of answers to things that people were had, having questions about. So, uh, but none of that ever penetrated rehab. None of it still has. So all the rehabs in the country will say they do evidence-based treatment. They do motivational enhancement. They do 12-step facilitation. They do CBT. Uh, they, and, and lately it's been um, uh, DBT. So, but when you actually, uh, Kathleen Carroll, a few years ago, uh, and she's a, a, a late Kathleen Carroll, uh, she died a few years ago, um, a wonderful person. And she did a study uh, in one of the uh, NIDA um, clinical trials network treatment programs. Now, these are programs that are affiliated with an academic center. And so they are above average in terms of their practices. And so she looked at the videotapes or the videotapes and audio tapes of therapists doing their job, doing their everyday work. And what they found was that the interventions that the therapists did were not bad, uh, but they were very shallow. And most of the time was spent on something that they came to call chat. This was like yakking about their dog and they had to take the dog to the vet last night and, you know, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And so uh, it was, most of it was, was, wasn't counseling. And, um, 
so that's an example of what of what really happens in treatment. It, what really happens in treatment is very little has very little to do with anything evidence based. Actually, rehab itself is not evidence based. I mean, you can't you you can't fix a chronic disease in four weeks, right? <laughs> And, and again, the, the, the founders of AA never thought you could. Their idea was that you did the work in AA, that the, the, the initial rehab was an introduction to AA, and they thought that's all it would take. And then all of a sudden, over time, it got kind of taken over by the, you know, the, the zealots who wanted insurance companies to pay for this in hospitals. Hospitals loved it because it paid for surgery and, and uh, radiology, um, and, and, the, and the patients cost the, the institution almost nothing. The, um, at any rate, there was a big boom in, in, in uh, community-based rehabs, uh, and all of it inpatient um, for no good reason. And uh, anyway, over time, they've called that down, so most of it's done as an ILP now, an intensive outpatient program. But again, there's no evidence. There's not one study that suggests that a burst of drug and alcohol counseling at the beginning of treatment does anything at all. And especially when you look at what the therapists actually do, you can understand why. Not only that, but think about this. You cannot learn recovery skills in rehab. It's a logical impossibility. So I here's a, an analogy I use. So uh, rehab is like in a basketball camp. And you go to the basketball camps and you leave, you leave your, your home for a month and you go to a basketball camp. And while you're there, you read about the strategies and the rules of basketball. And you watch videos of people playing basketball. And uh, you hear lectures about people playing basketball. And former and current basketball players come in and they talk about playing basketball. Uh, you may even go to a few games while you're there. However, while you're in rehab, you never touch a ball and you never set foot in a court. And then they discharge you and they say, go play basketball. You know, what and you so mentioned brought up a lot. Yeah, so so it basically, the work doesn't start till you get home anyway. Yeah, one of the things that, First, I appreciate you mentioning Kathy Carroll. Um, we love Kathy here. Um, you know, we're we're in the shadow of Yale, where our, our office is for the most part. And and I use Kathy as an example when I train on uh, some of the credibility issues about ego. That she had a healthy ego. She was a strong believer in in CBT with the use of medications. And then they did the study where she realized that it wasn't as effective as she thought. And openly talked about how she had to change her opinion based on science. Um, right. So I, I talk about that. But also one of the things you mentioned was the 12-step the thing. And I think the number is 72 or 73% of, of programs in the country are 12-step based, uh, which brings up some issues for me, certainly around attraction rather than promotion, et cetera. But we also have not seen a change in outcomes since 19, any significant change in outcomes since 1976, and and I can't remember if that was something that I got from Scott Miller or from Dr. Bob Lynn. Just the system isn't working, but yet we keep perpetuating it. Well, not only that, but there's the the, the 10 percent, the magical 10 percent. We've never broken that barrier. So uh, the the worst, the most seriously uh, affected 10 percent of people 
with substance use disorders end up going through some sort of a rehab. 10% of people who have the disorder, and they are the sickest of the sick. They're the people who run their trucks into school buses full of kids. They're the people in jail, in prisons, in hospitals. Um, they're the people you know, losing jobs, losing spouses. Um, so, uh, and, and so they needed a place to go, which is fine. You know, the interesting thing about AA is that it was founded by middle-aged white Protestant male sociopaths. These people were not, they didn't just become jerks when they drank. They were already jerks before they drank. <laughs> they remained jerks after they stopped drinking. And so, uh, and you know, you, you know the story I'm sure about the evolution of AA out of the Oxford. Yeah, they, re they retained a good a good deal of that, um, but the, the the and and they fixed a lot when that was wrong with the Oxford group, primarily that of power. But the uh, and and the twelve uh, traditions are quite brilliant in that in that regard. However, when you look at it, you can you can see that this is a program for sociopaths. It's for people who don't have a conscience, so they have, make the group their conscience, or they turn their life and will over to God as they understand it, right? Well, that's that's a that's a that's a, a cure for sociopathy. And if you look again, if you look at the twelve steps, it's like the you know the first few deal with drinking. The rest of them are all about character building, right? Mm -hmm. So you know it's about making amends and it's about being a good person, basically. And uh, you have to do that within AA. And so that's what they call sober. They call sober is abstinence plus uh, characterological development. And so, but if you're not a sociopath, <laughs> then you're, you know, you're likely to be a victim of a sociopath. I mean, if you're a woman, for example, women are, are, are you know, most women are not attracted to AA. And the reason is, is because they, you know, they've never been, uh, they've never thought they were the center of the world. They, you know, they've never tried to impose their will on everybody else. But the, um, uh, if anything, um, you know, they don't need to be told they're powerless. Okay, most women don't need to be told they're powerless. They need assertiveness training, mm -hmm. and um, so um, that's why it's it's never caught on much. I mean, it's so the the, the the strongest predictor of uh, affiliation with AA is severity of, of addiction. Severity of addiction is the largest and uh, most common um, factor involved in affiliation with AA. As we look at resistance to change, where do you think, and, and there's a, a tremendous amount of it, where do you think the genesis of that is from and why it continues today? You know, what's really interesting well, first of all, it, it is that there's no country uh, other than other country like us in the world in terms of the penetration of AA. Uh, and I've puzzled about that for some time. And I think there are two factors. One is we're the most individualistic culture on earth. And the second is that we uh, are highly religious. And the religion, uh, the, the basic religion of the land is Protestant. So uh, one thing I, I, I frequently tell people is 
nobody loves, okay, let's see. Everyone loves a reformed sinner. And so uh, rehab has become, I think, a replacement for shaving your head and going in the seminary for a year, you know, where you repent and you come out redeemed. And uh, that, that it really does have a very, it's a, that's, what, that's the punishment aspect of it. Not only that, but AA double stigmatizes you because it, it tells you that if you do run a if you do a 12-step program, you will be sober. And they actually believe it and they say it. Even though every day their members are you know falling off the wagon. But they tell people this. And so uh, so here's my old joke, here's my joke about that. What is $45,000 by? An expensive relapse that's your fault. <laughs> I do. I, I agree because some of the language, you know, relapse is a part of recovery. But if you relapse, you start from square one. Is It is double stigmatizing and it, it, it's kind of uh, uh, ridiculous. Well, yeah. And again, uh, I have nothing against a people for as a, as a voluntary organization that people can choose or not choose to affiliate with and it has many advantages it's uh it's, it's free if you want it to be free and it's widely available however uh it has many disadvantages too and some of them are uh that first of all it's got the most severe people so people with less severe substance use disorders which is most people mm -hmm can't relate. So they go in and they talk about struggling with trying to keep their drinking down and they drink eight drinks a day. That's a very typical amount. Now, not in AA. In AA, they're, you know, they're chugging handles, right? So, you know, the average amount in AA is probably at least a quart, a liter uh, of uh, vodka. So, uh, you know, for, the, for most of my patients who are functional, and have lives <laughs> outside of drinking. Um, to, to the members of AA, their drinking is at a, a, a level that they might call light refreshments. That's you really know, interesting. It, yeah, it really is. And so part of it is that, uh, and part of that has to do with this argument, uh, the central argument of 12 step, which is that the all addictions are alike they're all progressive and um you have to abstain from everything to be in recovery and recovery is uh, considered you know this this obsession with counting the days and the years from the time they stop drinking that is a extremely difficult and dangerous thing for most people. And it leads to innumerable problems, most of which are things like shame and guilt from uh, recurrence. So um, the so, so basically you have to reject all of that stuff to, uh, uh, to provide professional treatment. Mm -hmm. Again, so AA is not, is not treatment. AA Never was designed treatment. to be. Never designed to be. Right, exactly. And, uh, but it got conflated with 12-step treatment. And so, um, 
basically, rehab doesn't do anything except people keep people sober for however long they're in. You know, they're in the sober house or in the um, uh, in the recovery center. So we should just throw it all away. Now, if, if the criminal justice system stopped making people go to rehab, the whole industry would collapse overnight. Almost everybody there, people tell me this, they go to, they go to what's called an AA meeting and every, or they go to treatment and everybody around them is a you know, 20 year old meth addict. And they're there because of the, they got in trouble with the law. You know, so it's like, oh, I can't relate to these people. People who are drinkers, middle-aged drinkers. So you see the struggle with women and and, and women. Uh, individuals of color that, that there's yes. not that welcoming. Don't no one to connect no. with. No, not only that, but uh, well, just about anybody besides a white middle-aged uh, Protestant sociopath. Um, <laughs> really, you think about it. I mean, women, people of color. Um, you know. None of this stuff really, uh, none of that resonates with anybody else. Um, and actually, you know, the, the the decline in religion, religiosity over the last 30 years is quite profound. And so I think it's much less acceptable now. We talk about, I'm sorry, you're going to say something. No, okay. You mentioned professionalism, and as a credentialing body, that's very important to me. I, we're, we make efforts to raise the professionalism of the field, um, and, and that's there's resistance to that. When you talk about the lack of professionalism and what, what you're seeing, can you, can you kind of tell me a little bit about that? Because I know what I see. Well, we see the same thing. <laughs> I mean, there's – I think when um, – there was an article that uh, Gabriel Glasser wrote for The Atlantic um, a few years ago. It was called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I think she quoted that um, there were 13 states, I think, at that time that didn't even require a high school diploma to become an addictions counselor. All you had to do was be in recovery for two years in a 12-step program. Everybody wants so, to be Morgan Freeman from Clean and Sober. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, <clears throat> the, you, you have that exactly right. And, and so uh, we've gone from, you know, that that's the one extreme. Uh, the other extreme is sort of like it's a bachelor's degree, which is ridiculous. I mean, in, there's no other field in which people with a bachelor's degree level of training have any independent responsibility, not social work, not counseling, not, um, not psychology, not nursing, none of it. If you have a bachelor's degree, that's great, but it doesn't give you a license to, to um, uh, practice independently. So my first, the first thing I would do would be to raise the bar to a master's degree, just to start with. The other thing is, why do we, why do we have a separate field? Why are mental health and substance use disorder separated all the way along? So we have a substance use disorder treatment system. We have a mental health treatment system. We have a physical health treatment system. We have social systems and social support systems. And none of them talk to each other. None of them even care what each other says. <laughs> 
So, but think about it. Why is substance use treatment and substance use treatment training separate from mental health training? So, you one of the questions you had is, well, what's the Altair model? Mm-hmm. Well, the Altair model takes the long view of treatment and outcomes. It takes the average alcohol-dependent person five years to stop drinking. We know that as a, that's a fact. That's not a that that's a, a fact of, that came out of a, a great study done by Anna Tripoli called NISARC, which you've probably heard about. And I mean, it's a, it was a big sample, forty-five thousand people, yeah, uh, uh, oversampled for women and minorities, and they followed them over th- over th- uh, three waves. And what they found was, again, well, one of the things they found was it takes about five years on average. And also uh, to quit drinking. And um, so it, what it really came out of that was that every disorder is very distinct. It has distinct genetics. It has distinct, uh, each disorder has distinct, uh, a distinct a natural history. Um, Opioid dependence is not like alcohol dependence. It's not like tobacco dependence. It's not like um, uh, amphetamine dependence. Not at all. They're all very different. And um, but the 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 you know the twelve step model just assumes they're all the same. Um, so we take a long view. We know that people will most people who who come to us um, will have at least one or more recurrences before they catch on, if, you know, and by the time they come to us, you know, that's not the start of their journey, typically. They've, they've tried over, they've tried a number of things on their own to stop drinking or to stop using, and they finally said, well, they are somebody else usually, you know, will say, okay, it's time now. You, you've tried it long enough, and you've got to go see somebody. Um, but they're not done in their journey. So people who come to us, everybody is ambivalent about their mm-hmm. use. Everybody has mixed feelings. They love it and they hate it. It's good, you know, it helps you, but it hurts you. And so people stop using when they, on balance, you know, if they look at the benefits and uh, harms of using, versus the benefits and harms of not using. And they, they say, well, if I keep on with, going with, with using, I'll end up dead and I'll end up divorced and I'll end up without a job. And if they look at the other side, they'll say, well, there's a lot there, you know? And so even though I love the way I feel when I drink or use, I'm, I'm willing to give that up for these other things, because I can't have them both. That's the essence of the decision that most people have to make. It's one or the other. It's using or it's, or it's life. One or the other. And I think the field or the, the professionals in the field try to push that, that decisional balance. They try to, to, to ignore the ambivalence right. and push why they think somebody should stop drinking and letting in instead of letting an individual work that out for themselves um that's right always looking at safety issues 
but letting that individual work that out for themselves instead of saying, well, we know. It's what my my colleague, Dr. Bob Lynn, called that fallacy of attribution, because I believe a certain thing everybody does. Well, that's right. And um, uh, so basically, we what we do is we say, you know, it's not up to us to tell you what to do. It's not us, not up to us to help you to to for, to give you a, a path for recovery. Our job is to help you find your path to recovery. What kind of feedback are you getting from clients and families? Oh, it's great, fantastic. I mean, the average length of engagement in Alter Clinic is two years. So people stick stick around and continue to work. That's great. Right. Yeah. So it's okay. So what we do. We we um, so first of all, we we're, patients are seen as having a disorder rather than being a disorder. We never use terms like addict or alcoholic because if you're alcoholic, you can never not be an alcoholic, mm-hmm. right? We use the term you have an alcohol use disorder or you have an opioid use disorder, right? Um, they we we use a respectful vocabulary. I'll, I can I'll send you a copy of our. Uh, we have a list of particular words that we never ever utter. Oh, I'd love that because words matter. I'm big into semantics. Exactly right. They really do matter, and uh, we treat all patients with respect and dignity. That means we we give them true informed consent. We tell them what the stats are. We we they have a choice, and uh, what I will tell people the first visit is, you know. Everybody has mixed feelings about their use. And you probably came here with the idea that maybe, just maybe, they have a pill that will help me continue to use and not have consequences. And I'll tell you right off the bat, we don't have such a thing. There is no such thing that exists. And this is where my Salabets and I disagree. I think that she did disregards the genetic component and the changes in the brain that occur, uh, such that the, the first symptom, I mean, the essence of, of addiction really, is impaired control once you start using. And, it, and, and, and so there's, there's really two aspects to it. That's the first one. And people notice that. People, you know, sometimes they'll, after a few years of this, they'll say, I don't have an off valve. I don't have an off switch. Once I start drinking or using, you know, it's all gone. And, but the, the, so then the question is, well, why do people keep doing it? Well, so there's another aspect to this, which has to do with an imbalance between the inhibiting and the uh, promoting uh, areas of the brain. So the, the inhibiting area gets smaller and the promoting area gets stronger. And there's something, in, it's called a preference switch. So most of us, most of the time, are focused like five years in a five-year time frame. That's the average for adults in the United States. Okay. Active cocaine and heroin addicts have a 20-minute time frame. Okay. So, and alcoholics are somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the thing is, is that addiction is always rational in the short run. Meaning 
that it will take care of that terrible feeling you have uh, or, or whatever it happens to be that triggers this. Uh, and, uh, you know, it'll get rid of that. And the, 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 the switch is, occurs when you go from five years to the next few hours. And you, you start to delude yourself. So every day people will, you know, with, with alcohol, for example, you can think of having a relapse every day, a mm -hmm. recurrence every day, because they'll be in the morning, they'll be sober and they'll say, I'm never doing this again. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, they're already planning their next drink, right? Mm -hmm. That's exactly how it happens. And the thing is that, um, uh, so they have to recognize that. And we have medications that can really help with that. So, but you have to take it at three in the afternoon. Anyway, I'll get into that later. But the thing is, um, they become sort of, we love anticipation. Ah, that's what it is. So what happens is the process doesn't start with drinking. The process starts with anticipation of drinking. So you think about it for for some time, whether that's five minutes or whether that's two hours. And so most people who work, it's about two hours. And they'll be basically watering at the mouth, just like Pavlov's dogs, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, by five o'clock. And they're, that's all they can think about is they're preoccupied with it. So it's the anticipation and preoccupation that snag us, that we love. It's titillating, it's exciting. It, you know, and we don't want it to stop. It's very, um, it's very uh, motivating. So we, we don't want that to stop. And so what we do is uh, we, we, so that's what gets us into what I call the water slide. The water slide is the loss of control. So once you're in a water slide, I mean, before you get into a water slide, you might say, I'm gonna stop 15 feet into this water slide today. And you get in and you change your mind, right? Usually about the third drink and, or whatever, or earlier than that with other substances. And so um, the, it's, it's two things. It's the anticipation preoccupation that lulls us into getting into the water slide. And then all of a sudden we go, oh, no, I'm in the water slide. I can't get out. And so there's a cycle of that over and over and over again. And people try their best to get out of that, but they can't. They can't get out of it. Most people can't. Now, uh, there are a few people with mild disorder who are able to, you know, attain long-term controlled use, but very few. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the genetics and neurobiology stuff. And once the, the loss of control is entrenched enough, the water slide is fully there. It, it, it really is a one-way street. You can't go back. You cannot go back. Now that's, people have exceptions. Cannabis, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, uh, with everything else, it's pretty, pretty accurate. With drinkers, with heroin users, with, uh, or opioid users, with um, uh, stimulant users. So, uh, so that's the essence, really. It's, a, it's a basically a genetic and, and uh, uh, 
neurobiological problem. One word about one more one more word about genetics, and I'll let you ask okay. questions. Talk. But the the other the other thing is keep in mind that most people who develop a, a moderate to severe alcohol use disorder have a family history of mm. alcohol use disorder. Almost all of them. And people who are, are future opioid addicts know it the very first time they take an opioid because they are they are among the the blessed few who have a positive experience of taking an opioid. Have you taken opioids yourself for pain relief? After uh, uh, it was in the hospital. I was on a fentanyl drip um, because the uh, uh, Dilaudid wasn't touching the pain. I had pancreatitis. And so, oh, God, uh, yes, right. <laughs> so they, I was on a, they put me in a medical coma and on a fentanyl drip. And just when they switched me back to bring it, they took me off the drip and were kind of titrating me down. I was still, I was going into withdrawal because it wasn't the same, it, 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 you know, it wasn't yeah. the same dose. It wasn't the same medication. And so it was working differently. And I was, oh, sweating and all that fun stuff. And that was controlled. Yeah, it's miserable. <laughs> it's miserable. But the thing is, the thing is, is that the acute response, I mean, when I take an opioid, I get itchy, I get nauseous, uh, I get foggy, I get constipated, I can't wait till I get off this stuff. I would never take an opioid for fun, ever. However, the future opioid addict, they go, oh, I've never felt so good in my life. I feel normal, I'm outgoing, I'm stimulated. That's it. So that, that tells me it's genetic. Yeah, and in my mind, I associate it with being in the hospital. Um, well, right. It, but it, it makes so, no interest to me. No, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You've been treated for uh, pain. You'll use it for pain, but nothing yeah. else. The Oxycontin is a tremendous medication when used appropriately. I just don't happen to like the, the like it myself. No, precisely. And the thing is, is that, so I think opioid addicts are born not me. Well, it's, you know, um, I've seen how it works be, you know, having my my brother took his own life about 30 years ago with uh, opioids and, uh, the, it, it, you know, uh, a lot of medical stuff involved in that. But then a couple of years ago, his daughter uh, died of an overdose as well. Oh. And so they their behavior, there was so much mirroring in, in her, her behavior to his. And she didn't even really know him because he died when she was very young. So there is a genetic piece that I think that right. I saw him in her, even though they, they didn't have the nurture part, just the nature. Yeah, no, that that's right. Um, and it's not about not about. Um, send you the send you our vocabulary list. So it, it's not about. Uh, so it, it, I mean, there's there's a nurture component to it, uh, particularly early in life. Mm -hmm. So if you are if you have a serious problems, serious neglect in the first year or two of life, it's really difficult. And so yeah. uh, and that that induces all sorts of disorders. Mm -hmm. it, we you know we certainly understand starting to talk more about the effects of trauma. And but we are going, I think, in a little too far with that by saying everybody who has an issue has trauma. 
The, yeah. uh, a recent study by the Chicago Social Drinking Project did a longitudinal study at looking at people, many who were able to have control drinking and many who weren't and ended up uh, having an alcohol use disorder. And when they talked to those folks with the alcohol use disorder, a good number of them didn't have trauma. They, they developed a drinking problem because they liked it too much. Well, that's just it. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, most people have, most people who develop an alcohol use disorder have a family history. Yep. And, you know, so they actually, you know, if you think about it, people with, uh, with an alcohol use disorder, they, they typically have, um, uh, they have a similar response to alcohol that uh, opioid addicts have to opioids and the initial response. They feel stimulated rather than sleepy. And they can develop tolerance. It's very clear to me that tolerance is genetically determined. Most people are asleep by the time they, they have five drinks, they're, they're out. Mm -hmm. And you can't, if, if you don't have the genetics for tolerance, you can't develop it. However, if you do, then pretty soon it starts to creep up. Um. As we start to kind of move towards the end, when you started out here, what did you envision? What was in your head that you saw that becoming? Well, so when I left NIAAA in 2010, I said, uh, you know, I, I had been talking about the same things for 30 years. And at NIAAA, I had the opportunity on a national platform so I really an international platform. So mm -hmm. I really had a lot of opportunities to educate people about this. And no one took it up. No one said, oh, you're right. Why are we, it's stupid that we're treating it this way. Nobody did that. So I said, well, I guess I've got to do it because nobody else has. And so that's why I started Altair. And so what we do at Altair is we treat, we're a one-stop shop. We treat everything. And um, uh, so it, we, we, you know, there's a lot of comorbidity, but it's not, so people don't have, they seldom have secondary alcohol dependence. It's usually primary, mm -hmm. but they have other disorders too. And it's, the, the frequency of comorbidity, first of all, is higher among people who seek treatment than people who don't. That's true for every disorder. It's also true that, that mental disorders are typically they're, they're common, mm -hmm. especially things like anxiety, depression, insomnia. Uh, chronic pain is a pathway into substance use disorders. Um, the P and PTSD and trauma more, more broadly, I think, is a, is a pathway into where it's really a personality disorder at that point. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative or derogatory way. What I mean by that is that they missed out on certain developmental landmarks that have to be repaired over time. So what we do is we um, we, um, we we first have to stabilize the substance use disorder. 
that's really critical because if you don't do that, you really can't make any progress. Um, doesn't mean they won't ever have recurrences. They will typically for a while. But um, once that is stabilized, I mean, I always, what I tell my staff is the goal of the first year is not using or drinking. That's the, that's the goal. There's no other goal. That's one goal of the first year is not using or drinking. And once they have that on board, then they start working on other things. Now, people will work on other things depend, earlier or later, depending on the severity of the alcohol or substance use disorder and the uh, severity of the coexisting disorder. So some people start earlier, some people start later. But the, you, have to, you have to control the substance use first. And when that's re reliably controlled, and typically with medication, uh, is very, very helpful. The, um, that, the, the, um, that allows people to, to, to start working on, their, on themselves. You know, what's really interesting is just had another patient. Um, and I was kind of reluctant to put this guy on, on uh, buprenorphine. And uh, because he, 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 his use pattern wasn't that, opioid use pattern wasn't that bad. However, his counselor, his therapist rather, um, so all of my therapists are dual trained in substance use and in mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. Now, all, all, all therapists ought to be trained in both. Why aren't we? So Altier is basically a mental health clinic that also treats addiction. Duh. It's not, it's nothing, nothing we do here is, is rocket science. Nothing we do is um, new. Uh, what, what's new in substance use disorder treatment? Nothing. I mean, we use ancient medic medications. We use uh, old, uh, uh, you know, therapies that were shown to be effective years ago. Um, but we just use them. So when we do CBT, we use a, we use a, a uh, for, for whatever disorder, we use a workbook. And we actually do CBT. Most mm -hmm. people don't do CBT. But, uh, and it's just, you know, we use EMDR, we use, or, or, so there's, I'm, I'm kind of an integrationist when it comes to psychotherapy. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe something and you're good at it. That's really the key. Um, so, so if I were going to fix the system, I would just bulldoze all the rehabs. There's no such thing. Um, you need sober houses that will uh, periodically allow for recurrences. You can't kick people out when they use once, right? So um, we work with a local, um, it's kind of a three-quarter way house, it's called Recovery Academy, where they work with people over time. And if somebody has a recurrence, they, they work with us to stabilize them, to treat them outside of, you know, most of them don't have to go to detox because detox centers are really, they're just drunk tanks. And besides, we institutionalize way too many people. Most people can be treated as an outpatient. And um, and they're very good at that, and and so we we, we work together a lot, and uh, so people some people do need 
sober housing. And you may need it for a, a month, but they may need, it, may need it for a year. And the, 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 uh, the house needs to be, the place needs to be, uh, needs to attend to those different needs, it needs to be flexible. But the, that, and we separate that from treatment because some people need a lot of housing stability, but not much treatment. Others need a lot of treatment, but they can live at home. So, you know, uh, that's the first thing. So you, you eliminate re re the whole idea of rehab. And you separate treatment and, re and uh, housing. And you deal with them independently. Um, <clears throat> you, um, and so what we do is... So, the first visit, people come in, they see a therapist, they see me typically the first visit, and we come up with a treatment plan and we initiate it that day. And they can typically come back once a week for some period of time, and that varies. So we have no stable, we have no um, uh, programming, um, no, no um, word is, we have no standard programming. We have no standard length of stay. And we treat mental health and substance use disorder at the same time. And we don't discharge people uh, after their substance use disorder is stabilized. We'll treat their mental health disorder in an ongoing way too. We're just, you know, so people ask me what my model is and I tell them it's healthcare. Integrative. Well, it's integrative, of course it's integrative, and it's um, respectful and it's, it's chronic disease management. That's all it is, it's chronic care management. Uh, and then it's using appropriate techniques depending on the other disorders, uh, on which disorders the patient has. And if they have opioid use disorder, they almost always have to be on Suboxone. Um, if they have alcohol use disorder, we use a lot of naltrexone. We use a lot. Actually, I'm probably the, the main prescriber of disulfiram or antabuse in the mm -hmm. country. Because that's, that's a medicine that's a great medicine, but people are afraid of it for, for irrational reasons. Um, and uh, so for a lot of people, that's a lifesaver. And we'll use uh, topiramate when necessary. Uh, we'll often combine, combine naltrexone with gabapentin. And I've also found a baclofen, which is a muscle relaxant, yeah. uh, seems to work very well with that people with both an anxiety disorder and a substance use and an alcohol use disorder. Um, but we'll we'll tinker and we'll do a lot of tinkering. Uh, you know, and uh, so you have to, and you have also you have to deal with. So that's basically our basic model. But the other thing we do is we we reject beliefs that are not evidence based. Things like progress that all that the it's inevitably progressive. Actually, the research shows most substance use disorders are fairly stable. And in my view, that has to do with genetics. Because people have a tolerance level. They may have a, an intermediate tolerance level of eight to 10 drinks, or they'll have a more serious uh, tolerance level of, let's say, 15 to you know, more of a fifth level. Mm -hmm. And then others will have, you know, they'll just be until they pass up. The, um, uh, we treat every, every addiction somewhat differently. And 
Cross addiction is a complete myth. Comes out of AA. Doesn't exist. And so your chances of developing another substance use disorder, if your first one is in remission, is less than 10%. And the, the biggest sin of all, the biggest sin is that most people will not treat ADHD and people with a, a history of alcohol of alcohol or other substance use disorder, but particularly with alcohol. And it's ADHD is highly overrepresented in people with alcohol use disorder. Wow, I didn't know that. It really is. So the um, so people may have been treated as a child, but they didn't like the, the medication. Um, um, but typically when they come to us, they're usually not being treated. And uh, we do a careful diagnostic study, uh, diagnosis, but it's a clinical diagnosis. And, and then we start them on something. And for the most part, I mean, I've only had two or three people who developed, eventually developed overuse of the, of the uh, stimulant and had to be uh, taken off of it. However, most people, for most people it's transformative. So it's almost like Suboxone is for opioid use disorder. Mm. With Suboxone, people get stabilized very quickly, and they within like weeks or months, they revolutionize their whole lives. They're different people. They're really literally different people. Mm. And um, it's a shame that it's not more available. You know, 5% of people, of doctors in the country are responsible for the vast majority of buprenorphine prescriptions. 5%. So even the people who get wavered don't, just don't do it. Yeah, when in Connecticut, um, a few years ago, I had asked somebody at the Department of Public Health what the, the rate was, and they said of, of about 10%, 8 to 10% of the doctors that were wavered were actually prescribing. That's right. Yeah, and so when you when you level when you when you make that a percentage of all doctors, it's about five yeah. percent, um, which is just a shame uh, because it it just really and, it, and that's just all bias. No, I mean, yeah, and there are things that come into play in that, that they don't want individuals with SUDs in their waiting room to scare their other other clients, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wish I could take pictures of my waiting room. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> they're they're like everybody else. Exactly. <laughs> but um, we still have, you know, we're such an all or nothing in our mind. That's another thing. That's all what we see, and, and this field is all or nothing as well. You've got to do it my way, or it's wrong. Instead well, of a little of this, little of that. Yeah, my way or the highway. Exactly. And and it's uh, sh sit down and shut up and shut up. Don't ask questions. That's how I was trained when I got into the field 30 years ago. And it's still the same way. Yeah. And and we learned through that it was wrong. Um, but there were people who still do it. You know, I, I and I worked oh, in a TC, and that's what we did. And um, we saw well, things weren't getting better. Yeah, Hazelden, uh, which is 30 miles away. They still do it. You know, you, the interesting thing about Hazelin is 
they have a wonderful physical plant. You walk inside and it's 1955. They, they do exactly the same thing they did in 1955. A colleague yeah. of mine recently resigned, maybe a year, year and a half ago, the dean, as the dean of the graduate school. Uh, yeah, yeah, the indoctrination uh, school, huh? Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it, and it's, I find it amusing, if not ironic, that you're in St. Paul and you, the Minnesota model is complete, you're rejecting it because it yeah. does not shown to be effective. Well, it hasn't shown, been shown to be not effective either because it just has no business in, in professional treatment. That's, that's really the issue. That's really the issue. Is it professional treatment or not? And are you know are your the people who are providing treatment for you uh, are they trained in both substance use and mental health? Do they do it? Do they do the two together? And do they have a master's degree? Yeah, that's an, that's I, an absolute minimum. I work with a lobbyist who was saying one of the biggest struggles when we look at workforce issues in D.C. is that we don't have every other behavioral health starts with the master's degree for clinical work and right. we can't you can't advocate for a workforce that's all over the place no. Um, no. so we need and, to get our, our house in order well that's right i mean there's you know there are these all these other like you have to be in recovery to treat addiction people ask me are you in recovery i said do you you know, if a, if a cardiac surgeon is about to open your chest, you ask him if he's ever had a heart attack. No, you don't. Because that's absurd. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm more <laughs> concerned that a doc I see is board certified. That's right. That's right. And also, what is last, you know, uh, is, is respect among his, prof his uh, yeah. professional colleagues, right? And, uh, yeah, you, you really want to know that. And, um the um, but people are in the dark when it comes to substance use disorder. Now you mentioned in your in your questions that are about the credentialing bodies. Yeah, that's the with a lack of oversight. We look at things like the Joint Commission and CARF and now Shatterproof, which is created. I think um, they don't really hold any water in terms of holding people accountable for doing what's right they well, may evaluate you but there's no follow-up and there's no you know what's going to happen if i don't meet these standards and some of them are pretty arbitrary of course they are the thing is they're there to i mean they're not going to push the field that's not what their job is yeah. you know the people i hold to blame the most are the single state agency directors and single the, the single state and you know directors who oversee uh credentialing uh, substance disorder, disorder treatment and they maintain the status quo they do and um the what other field is there where you don't have to uh, measure outcomes. Yeah, it's, it's the only one that I 
you don't have to be effective to continue. No. If I have a hamburger stand and I don't sell hamburgers, people don't buy them, my clothes. Or if they're well, lousy, people are going to go away. Well, the thing is, though, there's a difference, is that if you have a criminal justice system that makes people buy hamburgers at your spot, and that has that means you don't have to change. That's what it means. You don't have to please the consumer because that's not the consumer of the service. The consumer of the service is the criminal justice system, is the judge. That's like the mafia. You're, you know, there's an old Cagney movie where he he made beer that was terrible during the prohibition, and everyone bought it. Prohibition ended, and nobody wanted it because it was terrible. So we was forcing forcing the taverns to sell it by strong arm tactics. Pretty right. realistic. It's very realistic, and uh, you know, judges love it because they love AA because it, it, they don't have to pay for it. Yeah, I, I have a pretty good relationship with one of the judges from the addiction special from the Boston Drug Court, um, which uh, pretty interesting how he, you know, they have a much better system in Massachusetts than many other states in terms of drug courts. But they'll have somebody professional do an assessment and say, the judge will say, listen to them and, you know, not just go to AA or. Right. But the thing is, what's an assessment here? We call it a rule 25. So. You know, it's an assessment that's based on the ASAM criteria. Mm. Well, ASAM itself is part of the problem because the placement criteria, you know, really are cement the entire system in place. So, you know, a higher level of care means, I mean, think of it. Uh, there's no such thing as residential treatment. Residential treatment is an ILP in a house. True. And an ineffective one at that, because you can't learn recovery skills in rehab. Well, as we draw near to the end of the time, let me ask you one final question. And is there anything that you'd like to add before we finish up? Yeah, I would like to say that um, uh, I'm working with a group that's called PATH, P-A-T-H. And PATH is uh, working to create a system of care that uh, is comprehensive, respectful, and effective. And they are one of the, they're the only ones I know who have included substance use disorder in their vision. So I'm going to be training all of their, and this is going to be a national movement. I mean, it, we're in California now, but we'll be in five states probably by the end of the year. Outstanding. And, yeah, and I, I'm going to be training all of their therapists and uh, and then eventually doctors and nurse practitioners in how to how to treat addiction. It's not hard. People just have never had any instruction in it. Well, thank you much for your time. That's a great thing, Alito. Make sure we look in we look into that because I think that sounds exciting um, to kind of change the system. Um, I appreciate your time today. I know you're a busy man, and I thank you for your insights. Um, this was a pleasure for me, uh, as you could tell by me smiling through much of what you said. <laughs> um, and I thank you once again for joining us, and, and have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thank Take you, care. sir. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Dr. Willenbring for, for his willingness to join us and for his absolute transparency. It was my pleasure to meet and talk with him. 
And all of us here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget, you can follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite application. Always free to listen. And I certainly want to especially thank two outgoing board members, Lisa Moon and Denise Keene, for their service to the agency. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Mm-hmm.